working with Peter has been great. Extremely intelligent. When I look at like an MLM for a company, is it the right time for this time. company? Right. Or is it going to be three years before like there's enough demand, like the funding, like environment is right, the macro environment is right. I, I think that's also a thing he really emphasizes in his book, just how important macro and timing is with companies. Mm -hmm. But you know, you can be building a company that the world needs and that, you know, has all the sort of DNA of a generational company. But right. if your timing is off or if your macro is wrong, it's not going to work. You can't just evaluate stuff based on tech. You have to take everything else to, into account as well. Welcome back to another episode of the Generation Hustle podcast, the show that explores the world of business, entrepreneurship, and culture, all centered around the millennial. I'm your co-host, Sherison, alongside my good friend, Amin, and this week, we're continuing our VC series with another great guest. Episode 72 is with Le Marie Braswell, principal of Founders Fund. Before joining Founders Fund, Le Marie was an early engineer and the first product manager at Scale AI, where she originally built and later led product development for the LiDAR 3D annotation products used by many autonomous vehicles, robots, and AR VR companies around the world. She also has done software development at Blend, machine learning at Google, and quantitative trading at Jane Street. Limery is originally from Alabama, graduated from MIT, and loves to play poker, run long distances, and scuba dive. Founders Fund is a San Francisco-based venture capital firm that invests across all stages and sectors, with a portfolio that includes Airbnb, Lyft, Spotify, Stripe, and Oscar Health. The fund was the first institutional investor in SpaceX and Palantir Technologies and one of the earliest investors in Facebook. Founded in 2005 by Peter Thiel, the fund currently manages over $11 billion in aggregate capital. So we sit down to talk to Lamaria about her journey through to tech. She details what makes the company and its founder investment worthy, the future of data and machine learning, and provides advice for early startups looking to grow. She also touches on the future of work, Elon Musk, universal basic income, and much more. This was such an insightful conversation that we hope you enjoy. So excited to have Lee Marie today from Founders Fund. Um, so as a lot of our listeners know, we are introducing a new series specifically designed around hearing stories for VCs. So as a lot of you know, we've shared over 80 plus stories of founders. And now we're kind of looking at the opposite side of things and getting the perspective of a VC. So welcome to the show, Lee Marie. Thanks. I mean, great, to, great to be on the show. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, one thing I'd always want to start off with is kind of the origin story of how someone gets into tech. And I think your story is very unique because you grew up in Alabama and most people associate Alabama with the Crimson Tide or football and stuff like that. And I'm just not, so glad you know about the football. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm a, huge, I'm a huge football guy. So don't get me wrong. I Alabama's always in the final every year. So it's always in your face, right? So um, everything about football and not so much about tech. And you won't really think about Alabama as a tech hub. So, you know, can you talk to a, uh, us about those early day influences and experiences that, you know, drew you towards technology, um, especially coming out of a small town in the middle of America? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely a good question and not a, not a super common path for sure. Uh, basically, what sort of happened was as I was growing up, I found myself very drawn to math in particular. So thankfully, you know, I went to public school, elementary, um, middle school. And at some point there was a competitive math team that you could join as like an extracurricular. Uh, and 
you know, kind of joined just out of curiosity and got very addicted. So, you know, started not only doing sort of the competitions as part of the the school program, but then also in my spare time, I think I just realized this is, this is it for me. Like I love to solve really challenging problems. And ultimately that's kind of what led me to get out of the state at all. Um, you know, a lot of people where I'm from never leave the state or don't even have passports or anything like that, which is such a weird concept in San Francisco. But um, yeah, so thankfully the, the sort of math, me growing up, I went to different camps around the U.S. Um, and finally sort of decided, you know, this is something that I want to pursue more seriously. I had the chance to go to boarding school uh, on the East Coast for the end of my high school. And then, uh, yeah, that's kind of what led me to ultimately go to college at MIT, figure out what tech and startups were. And then, you know, there was a, a long string of internships that w- went from trading to engineering uh, to product management and ultimately led to me joining Scale AI right out of school. Uh, I met Alex, the CEO of Scale, at MIT playing poker, actually, and, you know, kind of th- discovered throughout my internships, product management and engineering uh, were, were sort of the most interesting to me. So yeah, that's kind of the the thing that led me to scale, and then I think it's a little bit of an easier jump going from scale to, right. to venture uh, mentally than like Alabama to to right. uh, San Francisco right. venture. Um, but that's the overview. And do you know any other like VCs that have come out of Alabama? I've actually I've met I've met a, a few. Uh, I think more on the sort of the growth investing okay, side. Okay, got it. Um, but yeah, no, I. If there is one that is also Probably a, a handful, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Um, I would love to love to connect. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, you know, what is it like um, for you growing up and maybe because we all also associate small town experiences with small town values and they have right. a different kind of perspective on life. So how's those shaped you in terms of your perspectives as an investor? Right. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, I think it's just kind of given me sort of more perspective besides it's, I think it's very easy in San Francisco and New York and Boston. Uh, a lot of people think in kind of the exact same way. Um, and I mean, to be fair, I've chosen to live in these places. So I, I do think that like people in general are more open-minded. Um, but it, it, you know, it just kind of, it, it, it reminds you as you're going about and meeting companies and making investments, like, the majority of America is very different from the people that we surround ourselves with every day. And so when you're building sort of a widely available consumer product, um, or if you're building a, a product that's supposed to sell to like small, medium businesses or something, um, that is a different profile of person that you're also serving. So I think it just kind of gives a little bit more perspective. Um, but, you know, I, I don't, I think that's, that's about it. Yeah, for me personally, uh, so my my parents are immigrants. And so they obviously grew up in a small town in India. And Mm -hmm. uh, some of those influences obviously have passed on to me, uh, specifically, obviously, like growing up as immigrant parents, they work hard and go through struggles and stuff like that. So orienting myself with kind of that hustle and kind of struggle, it's kind of inbreded in me. So I feel like some of those aspects are in you when you kind of talk to other individuals. And maybe you have an appreciation for individuals that come from not the normal areas like SF, New York, and stuff like that. I think their stories are so unique to tell, and I think they're underappreciated almost sometimes. And uh, it's it's lovely to see more individuals coming from less common places within VC, because uh, I think that's kind of what will promote more innovation and growth and in finding those individuals. 
Definitely. And I mean, it's definitely great um, now that, you know, more and more content is moving online yeah. uh, and a lot more business is done online. I do think like it is way more likely today than it was even just a few years ago that, you know, the next company can come out of anywhere or the next sort of, you know, like yeah. an engineer doesn't just have to be somebody that's that's grown up in the Bay Area or something like that. So um, definitely super optimistic that like, yeah, sort of the the recent acceleration of things because we had to go remote. Um, you're going to see people coming out of a lot of different yeah. areas now. There's not as much of like a geographic imperative that you're right, in. Right, right. And so maybe back backing up to your time in Alabama, at any point in time, did you feel like, you know, this fear or um, kind of moving out of a small town and kind of going to the big city and or maybe kind of disassociating yourself with some of the friends who might have those tradi traditional local values and kind of farming-esque or like blue-collar jobs and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely always a little scary when you're kind of like, the first or one of the first, or you don't have like someone that's done the exact same thing as you. I was definitely fortunate in that when I started to get into math more seriously, I did have a sort of mentor um, that basically set, encouraged me and kind of pushed me um, to, to do things that, that made me feel uncomfortable, like go to like a, you know, an overnight camp outside the, outside the state right. from everybody that I knew. Um, but yeah, I kind of lucked into finding this person and, you know, it was in like the, the biggest city in Alabama. And so then my parents also, you know, would drive me down, um, to like wow, go okay. and like work with this person. And so like, yeah. you know, I was very fortunate in that, you know, it, it was a combination of me wanting to do it, but right. then also like having the support system in place, um, and having, you know, somebody who had spent a lot of time outside the state, um, <laughs> sort of mentor me. And so it's really spoken to, the importance of like having these people that that do give you like a little bit of support um and hopefully like you know this day and age hopefully you can find some of that online um right or or there's some platform to make better in-person connections um to get that same support because yeah yeah if i hadn't had somebody that you know said hey lee marie this is this is what you should do or this is okay um, you know, might, it might not have happened. Right, right. So I think luck plays into it a little bit here, uh, as with anything in life, you know, you mm. need a little bit of spring of luck to get somewhere. Mm. Um, and you, you, you talk about math being a critical influence in your life um, and a catalyst, I say, to get you, yourself into tech. At what point did you feel like, you know, or did you discover coding as an avenue um, to kind of build a career and ML AI being the right path for you? So in high school, when I went to the boarding school um, for 11th and 12th grade, the course catalog was expansive. Like mm -hmm. it was, it was insane. It was like a college course catalog. And so there were many sort of, I, I thought it would be a little short-sighted if I did nothing besides advanced math right. classes. And so I did take some really awesome programming classes there. Um, and, you know, I think no, I think I didn't do any ML until I got to college. Okay. Um, but I mm -hmm. did have the chance to like do some real computer science courses with like tangible projects and kind of started to become a lot more interested in sort of the, this practical application of, you know, logic and reasoning. Um, and then in college found an ML class and I was immediately blown away by how it was sort of the perfect marriage between mm. a lot of the math that yeah. you know, I, I grew up loving and then sort of the more practical applied side of things. Um, 
So yeah, new in college, almost as soon as I started taking these classes, like ideally this is a component of, of my like full-time job, whatever that is. And, you know, I think that led me to when I was thinking about, do I join scale AI or do I join another company? Right. Ultimately at scale, I'd be building for and with ML engineers. And right. that was really compelling. That's awesome. And I think, you know, kind of taking those skill sets, those early learnings, you've kind of adapted a career into VC now. Um, But, you know, the common pathway we typically see for VC is either from IB or their prior entrepreneurs or some Mm -hmm. somewhat of an operator within a business. Um, And now recently we're seeing more technically focused individuals, whether they're, you know, software engineers or product individuals. Um, So, you know, before we get into that specific story of like the work experience, Maybe could you outline some of the core skill sets that you require um, someone to have to break into VC? For sure. And that's a great question. Uh, And I think every venture firm thinks of it a little bit differently. So Mm -hmm. I'll preface it with that. Um, But I think ultimately, if you look at the job of being a VC, there's a few components. Can you spot the company? Can you diligence whether or not it's a good investment? Can you win the deal? Um, and then can you support the company and like, you know, I think every VC firm is a little bit more hands-on or hands-off, um, but can you support the company like throughout its journey and be a really true partner, yeah. uh, whatever that means. And then, so, you know, if you look at each of those components, you know, let's take the first one. Can you spot the company? So, you know, this means, do you have a, there's a few different ways that I guess you can be a really great sourcer, but do you have a great network? So like, do you have people that you've worked with in the past or, um, you know, you hustle to, to get in front of um, and, and sort of develop a relationship that can show you like either the companies that they're starting or their friends are starting mm-hmm. or that they're investing in, if they're like a, an earlier stage investor or maybe an angel, um, or are you just like a beast at going online, figuring out, okay, I think this is a good source of companies and figuring out some sort of way to filter through them quickly. Right. Yeah. So, the, you know, I think there's there's a lot of different strategies you can do, whether it's, you know, figuring out how to become a pro user of LinkedIn or like getting really big on Twitter and sourcing that way. And, you know, there's or writing content and having people come inbound to you because of the content. I think, you know, there's a little component of that in in in, in uh, most, you know, especially especially if you're a more junior VC, the sourcing is, is quite important um, because you don't have that network. Right. That's um, usually like self, you know. I mean, the very best VCs, uh, at least, you know, the ones that, that I talk to basically spend none of their time actively sourcing because they just have so much organic and, uh, yeah. deal flow. Yeah. yeah. And so the longer you spend, the more that becomes, becomes a thing. But I think when you're getting started, figuring out like the channels that you're going to see companies and the the partnerships with other people that you need to make um, is an important skill set. Um, and then, so after you find the companies, you have to do you, is this a good investment? Right. And I think that, you know, combination of things, analytical skills, when you're looking at numbers, when you're looking at markets, um, it gets a little bit also of kind of like a an art or you need some context depending on what you're looking at. Right. Um, I think every VC firm like thinks of this differently. I think mm-hmm. Founders Fund, and we can, I mean, go into more of this later, but Founders Fund definitely places a big um, a lot more importance on sort of the founder themselves, their right. strengths and weaknesses versus like, you know, having a thesis about a particular space and a particular strategy uh, okay. itself. Um, but depending on the VC firm you're at, 
you know, it might look more like you need to be an expert in certain markets, or it might look more like you need to be an expert in like people, um, basically. Right. Um, and then sort of the last last two sort of categories of where you you might need skills winning the deal. So I mean, this typically, you know, if you're at a VC firm, typically you work together as a firm to do this. Um, especially like relying on a lot of the more senior people who obviously have been through this before and have a bit more to offer in terms of like experience and um, context and things like that. But it's figuring out the right strategy to show the entrepreneur that your venture firm is the right fit for them. Got it. Um, yep. And it's very, I mean, as you, as I'm sure you know, um, as more and more people enter the VC ecosystem, this yep. gets more and more competitive. It's very competitive, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a sales job. Uh, right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I always always talk to like um, some of the founders that I work with saying, mm-hmm. you know, um, one, you also like capital is a commodity itself. So money's available in a lot of places, mm-hmm. but finding that right strategic partner who is going to provide you that maybe the hiring resources or the strategic resource from an operational level, and then maybe being that strategic support in next rounds mm-hmm. that can kind of lever and help you scale are the kind of critical things that you're looking for. It's not mm-hmm. just money. I mean, there's desperation sometimes that plays into it. Um, and especially with this macro environment that we're for dealing sure. with now. But, uh, you know, I totally agree with all those points. One thing I want to actually double down on there is this word called hustle. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, you know, people have different definitions of it, but how would you define hustle? That's a great, great question. Um, I think it's in some ways, I guess, other words that I think mean about the same thing sometimes, mm-hmm. um, like proactivity, um, shamelessness, um, just sort of like the thought in your mind that you can you have complete control over an outcome, mm-hmm. even though maybe you don't, like you probably don't, but feeling like even if like something is near impossible to happen, I'm going to do it anyway because I feel like I can change that. Right. Um, some sort of like agency in a way. So, you know, I think there's a lot that's very similar between actually being a product manager and being a VC in this sense because there has to be sort of like a, I think the best product managers are just, they kind of think that they can run through walls and like get things done, even when like there's a lot of complex dynamics and, right. you know, you, you have to reach out to a total stranger or you have to like convince someone of something that, you know, they don't believe in. Um, and so like, I think that there's some similarities in the job in that, in that aspect, but I've also, uh, I guess another good example is I think it's startups. One of the most undervalued traits of a good startup teammate is someone that is always selling the startup to right. everyone that they know. I think recruiting, even if you're an employee at a startup, is such an undervalued skill. And mm-hmm. I think this is one of the reasons Scale was very successful. Everyone, we literally just called ourselves shameless. We were like, we're always going to tell people how well Scale is doing. Right. And we're going to like always be trying to like take our best friends and like have them come and join us. And I think it's similar in VC. You know, you see a really great company, a really great founder even if you don't have like connections to that person or whatever, how do you sort of like get their attention and try to get them to, to have a conversation? Um, so I think that some of that's some examples of hustle, I think in, in both roles. 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And then maybe like to backtrack and maybe say my definition of it is very similar. In that mm-hmm. sense, being proactive, trying to find an adaptive solution to the kind of core problem that you might have. And kind of thinking outside the box is essentially kind of how I think of it. And having an opinion that is not of the norm is maybe trying to associate it with a little bit like that. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, you're spot on with that. I, I love hearing like people's definition of what it is because, you know, some people might think of it a completely different way, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm glad we're on the same uh, page there. Um, you know, now kind of moving into your personal experiences, both at scale, Google, and maybe some of those side hustles that you had, what were the kind of transferable skills? Uh, obviously hustle was one of them, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, some of the necessary skills that made you a, an amazing fit for a, fa- a firm like Founders Fund. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Founders Fund, maybe we can take a step back and I can give you a little the story of yeah, Founders sure. Fund and kind of the things that that, that we value. Um, but essentially, Founders Fund, some of the PayPal co-founders founded Founders Fund under the backstory that their experiences with VC throughout their time at PayPal were not great. Um, so essentially, VCs came into PayPal. You know, they tried to run the company. The CEO got displaced multiple times. Um and so they really wanted to create a venture capital firm that was a very different paradigm from the venture capital firms at the time, um, where the strategy was finding the very best founders and essentially promising never to seriously vote against them or displace them. Like always supportive, you know, giving critical feedback, of course, but you know, letting them run their own companies. And so at the time that was very novel. I think since then, you know, a lot more VC firms say uh, similar things um, and, and uh, sort of, you know, walk the walk to different degrees. But um, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of always been the ethos of the firm. So finding people that, you know, can find find and work with the, the very best founders. I think in terms of kind of the, the culture of the firm, everyone's quite, you know, individual. Like we don't have any firm-wide theses besides the strong founders thesis. Um, like literally any any topic, you'll have people disagree um, with each other. Um, but I think what kind of unites everyone is sort of, I mean, everyone's very intellectual, very sort of like outspoken. Um, and so I think when they're adding new members to the team, they just want somebody with a different perspective basically. Um, and so I think, you know, my sort of perspective from working at scale and from being kind of in the front row, um, seeing what's going on in machine learning and dev tools for the, for the past few years, I think that was sort of a useful addition to the team because there is a whole category of companies that I think will be very large companies that's going to come out of that area. Um, and then similarly, I think you can apply a lot of the same lessons in areas like crypto and other sort of technical areas. So I think that's, that's kind of the, the logic. Um, but yeah, they try to keep headcount pretty pretty small. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. the economics of a, they don't hire very many people. Yeah, no, that makes yeah. sense. And the economics of a VC fund uh, make it kind of that way. And I guess we'll get into that in like a maybe another conversation another mm-hmm. day of how actually VC fund is structured. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think one of the things um, again, if I'm going to VC, something that's synonymous with a VC now is kind of building a brand um like a personal brand um so what would maybe your best advice be for someone who's early in their career within vc you know you mentioned kind of that networking piece that is very critical to kind of give you the other side of things uh, afterwards as you kind of develop that career but what is um the best advice you can give for the branding side of things for sure um i think i mean people definitely go about this in lots of different ways i think what's helpful 
you know, so when I was at scale, the thing that kind of made me transition into investing was I started angel investing. Um, and I think that was a great lesson for me because even as an angel investor, like it's obviously a lot less competitive than being a full blown VC, but you still have to have a very strong brand to convince founders that it's useful for them to like go through the extra overhead of adding you as an angel to their yeah, capital. Yeah. Um, and so you need to figure out, you know, what do you bring to the table that's unique? Um, and then you need to figure out how do I prove that, you know, like that is my brand. Um, and I think it's a combination of just like finding good examples of, you know, when you exhibited that brand. So for me, it was, you know, being able to help hire very technical talent for the companies. Uh, and I mean, that that basically happens once you get your first few angel investments and you start helping them and you develop really great right. references. Um and then also sort of helping with strategy, especially as it relates to ML. And I think there's a lot of different ways that you can display that, whether it's you know your background, content you write online. I think figuring out how to like like leverage like Twitter and Substack and all these other places online is is great for branding. And it's like a combination. It's 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 definitely. I didn't get sort of good at Twitter until yeah, yeah. I was a full time VC because it's very challenging. Um, just like what will perform well and what won't. Right. Um, yeah, sort of like how much of your brand you want to be, you know, very serious content versus more lighthearted stuff and, um, you know, all of that. But I think it's something you just kind of have to figure out along the way, but ultimately it's all about like, how do you convince founders that like you're the right partner for them? And so that's kind of the, you know, how many, how can you find examples and supporting information for that? Got it. And maybe another question here is, uh, generalist versus expert. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So founders fund, we're explicitly a generalist fund. Um, so even though we all have like specialty areas and things that we like, um, we are all generalists because the thesis is like at any point in time, you know, the best company could come from anywhere. And so we shouldn't have somebody that's just restricted to looking at one area where there might be, you know, no good companies in the next five years. Um, because that would be kind of wasting everybody's time. So there, you should be open to to looking at anything. Um, I mean, I, you know, and I that's the strategy that that we all um, execute. But then at the same time, I do think it pays to be a little bit more of an expert in certain areas because it helps you differentiate both your deal flow, how you diligence things. And then also, um, I think it gives you a leg up when you're trying to convince someone that you're the best partner for them. So I do think in machine learning in particular, um, I think it'd be much more challenging to make investments wisely without feeling pretty confident in like your own background knowledge of the industry. And I think there've yeah. been multiple examples too, where somebody might not have wanted to work with me unless I'd had sort of the context and, and the background it. that I have. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's a bit of a trade-off. Um, everybody values different things and different types of companies need different levels of diligence. And so, you know, I'm always yeah, case going by back case, and forth, right? like, how much right. do I need to kind of make this investment now? Or do I need to like become more of an expert in this area before I make this investment? Got it. Got it. No, that makes sense. And, um, you know, maybe transitioning now to your actual work at Founders Fund. So one of the things I found pretty interesting is obviously your work in AI and ML. Um, so a broad banner question here is what sort of trends are you kind of noticing? Um, and how has that kind of shifted your personal investment approach when it comes to sourcing companies? 
For sure. Um, so there's definitely a lot going on in, in data and ML. Um, and it kind of, you know, I've, I've written a few kind of blog posts on, on the subject. Um, but in general, like, you know, more, more and more companies are, are, you know, organizing their data better, like wanting to make decisions from their data. Sometimes maybe that needs machine learning, but probably sometimes it does not. Um, so I think there's like a few trends that I'm quite excited to see. One is kind of like the emergence of sort of more standardization across data platforms. So, you know, I think the, the VC term for this um, is the modern data stack, but essentially like where, where, you know, what will be the new like data catalog for the modern data stack will be the new like ML layer for the people that need ML. Um, I think there's sort of, there's more and more standardization across, okay, this is the way that we do ETL, um, et cetera, but can can all the sort of things that you need to do with data, um, what, who will be the winners there? And, you know, I think it's interesting because I think there could be companies that own just many different areas of all the things you need to do um, as like a data analyst or a data scientist. Um, and it's like more of a strategy question of where do you wedge in and what does the tech and the architecture look like? And, you know, how, how, do, how do you best use that leverage point to, to, to go across the stack? Um, so I think it's like, it's, it's just quite interesting because it could be a company that exists today, could be a company that's very right. early. Um, but the prize is huge because, I mean, ultimately, you know, every company uses data. And um, I think, you know, I think data engineering as a field is, is um maturing and kind of hitting an inflection point as to it being like something that every company realizes is quite important. Um, I guess on the more ML side of things, I mean, I think ML as a field is much earlier than sort of data as a field, um, but there's still a ton of startups in the space. Um, so, you know, I think there are sort of these clear ML pain, pain points around cost, well-defined use cases, um, especially people that like ML is a hair on fire problem for them. It's like a core part of their business. So like self-driving car companies, the big tech companies, the growth startups that are you know, using recommendation systems and production or whatever. Um, I think there's serving those customers, which is what scale did. Um, you can find a lot of pain points and willingness to pay. I think the longer tail of ML, um, I'm a little bit less sure of sort of like when it will mature and a lot of companies will be willing to pay to support, you know, startups that are more sort of self-serve ML or ML for sort of less sophisticated customers. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, there's examples already of startups in this area being successful, like weights and biases. Um, but I think it is harder because you're essentially banking on multiple or many more people paying less, right? So um, versus like the the the, the self-driving car companies all have a quite a large ML budget. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to see like, you know, how do, how do people get started with ML quickly? How do people collaborate? Um, you know, are there things that you can build that are vertical specific and out of the box? Got it. Yeah. Um, are there cool apps that you can build on top of new ML tech like GPT-3? Um, I'm really interested in that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, this is an exciting time for sure. Like there's just so much new tech being developed and um, I think people are excited to try it. Um, but yeah, uh, it could, I, uh, I don't know. It's funny. Sometimes people ask me, okay, well, what, like, what are the top five ML, like, right. types that you want to see? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, they could come from these areas, but then also it could be something that I just totally don't see. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's, 
it's good having the sort of the the founders fun approach where I think if you have a really great founder, um, I mean, I'm not not gonna claim that I know what they should do better. better right. Than, uh, yeah. 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 No. Better. No. That's awesome. And I think one of the funny things is like I recently spoke to a founder last week. And I asked him the same question, like in the next five to mm-hmm. 10 years, wh- what kind of industry do you feel like is going to have the largest impact? And, you know, most people would have said Web3, crypto, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But he's like, no, AI and ML and the evolution of that and the impact that it's going to make on mm-hmm. businesses, you as a person and kind of the conveniences that you might have um, and seeing how that kind of evolves and the data trends along with that. So um that, that was interesting because like he kind of mentioned the same thing in terms of mm-hmm. the evolution and that's kind of mm-hmm. where he's focusing on um cool. so it was re- really cool to hear that and so you know going to now at the investment stage you're let's say you're sourcing a company and we're trying to get uh, an investment done here mm-hmm. um what like what makes a company attractive uh or the founders attractive or kind of the traits Um, I know we alluded to it a little bit earlier, but if you were, you know, let's just say, for example, Tactic is a company that you guys recently invested in. Right. What kind of sold you guys on that opportunity? Absolutely. And that's that's a great example, too. Um, So Tactic is a crypto accounting software, um, basically helps you with things like, you know, taxes um, for for complex crypto transactions that you as a company would do. and yeah, I think the the main reason that we got conviction in tactic was quite frankly the the founder CEO Anne. Um, I mean, you, when you it's it's one of those. I, I mean, I love when you when you meet a founder and then you just kind of automatically there's just something about them. They're just very passionate about what they're working on. Very charismatic. You can automatically tell that they're like quite smart, first principles thinker. Um, you know, they tend to have a background. I mean. That's, People's backgrounds can really, really come from anywhere. I think one that sets you up for success is, you know, you've worked at a startup before and kind of seen how things have been done there. Um, and even better, if, if you've convinced a lot of people from that startup to then go and join you um, on this new new venture, obviously like Modulo, non-competes and non-solicits and all of that. Um, but yeah, I think that was kind of the, the first impression and then I think just in general, the thesis that Tactic is building for, um, we actually co-led the round with Ramp um, because, I mean, it's just kind of glaringly obvious that this is such a pain point for, yeah. you know, Web3 companies. And now even as more Web2 companies like become Web2.5 or they try to like get into crypto in some way or another, right. everyone's going to need the software. Yeah. Um, and so like that sort of thesis was kind of a no brainer. Um for us. Um, yeah. And then, so yeah, strong founder, super strong team. Like they have multiple like superstar programmers, um, on the team. Uh, and then yeah, sort of huge market, right time we, we think. Um, so that those, some of the things that, that make help to make the decision easy. I think one good framework for this, um, you know, past my rambling, uh, is there's there's a there's seven questions in okay. the book zero yeah. to one, and it's seven questions that you know, Peter says you should ask about every investment, right. whether it's you know timing or people or you know go to market or whatever. Um, but it can be a good framework for you know does this sort of investment make make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, there's like it's it's interesting because something that's a good angel investment or just a good investment on its own. Can also be different from what's a good 
VC fund investment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so like, I think another thing when you're at a multi-stage fund, I didn't appreciate this before, um, but there's always this strategy of like, if you're bullish on a space, like when do you make a bet into a company? Because you only, as a you know founder-friendly multi-stage firm, you're only going to support one company. Um, yep. And so it's always a question of like, do you do a seed investment into this area? Do you wait if it's crowded until like there's a clear winner, like we did with Persona? Um, we did their Series C, is identity, identity verification company. Um, do you wait until there's more data points and then kind of come in later since we have a growth fund? There's always like this sort of fun right. strategy question too. Yeah. And I think that's a common question or like at least something I mentioned, like sometimes your business is not made out to be a VC like backed company and, mm-hmm. you know, taking an angel investment that's completely different because um, mm-hmm. their capital is kind of locked down to themselves. Whereas VCs have a um, kind of, they have to kind of go back to their LPs and <clears throat> the GPs and yeah. make sure the fund is actually doing something. <laughs> so they have mm-hmm. something there uh, tangible to kind of have, um, and so when it comes to, say, due diligence, um, again, it varies from fund to fund. But, you know, let's say you're considering investing in a more technical company or a deep tech company. Um, how do you evaluate if their tech is legitimate? That's always something I've wondered. I'm not technical mm-hmm. by nature, so I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Great. It's a good question. Uh, I think a lot of funds yeah, do this differently. Um, and we've done it differently over the years, too. So. It, it does depend on the type of company. Like if it is a spe- very specific type of deep tech, let's say it's space um, or ML, um, ML infra, like there, then there are people at Founders Fund, like just the 12 out of the 12 investors that I do think can diligence it quite effectively. Um, and so like those areas, you know, we, we can do it ourselves. There are some though that like, you know, if it's kind of a very specific type of biotech or a very specific type of, like computing or something like that, where, you know, I don't think we can kind of like fully diligence the tech ourselves. And at that point you have to kind of rely a bit on your network. Um, And so over the years, you know, everyone, everyone at Founders Fund has kind of developed a deep sort of technical bench of people that can provide great references on basically anything. And so if a company gets, if we really love the founder of a company, we really, we love the space like everything is kind of like, you know, promising, then we might bring in like some external like reference or Got somebody um, to help us like just get that last level of, of conviction. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a lot of, a lot of venture and moving fast when, when there, when there's a deal, it's live. If you don't know the person or there's like some other unknown, then, then getting references is, is an important part of being, being a VC and learning who, you know, provides good references and who you can trust. Right. And I think it's so important um, just understanding what their tech is doing, or at least the code is enabling. Uh, Mm. Because I feel like, you know, there's a lot of AI tools out there or ML tools that kind of sell themselves as that. But really, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like basic code. And this maybe there's a basic algorithm that just plops out something. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they sell it as deep tech. And I guess from a valuation standpoint or whatever, they're doing it that way. But there's a lot of those stories that I've heard um, Mm -hmm. and have hurt investors in the long run. Um, So, you know, a good good point in saying find a reference, get that help. And understand yeah. exactly what they're building. So that makes you, know, you got to know the limits of your own knowledge. Yeah, like, you know, like at a, I do think I can diligence a lot of them all in for quite effectively, but at some point, 
Um, right. Yeah, you got to learn to to bring in, in somebody else. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I had to ask you this, but since you work at the Founders Fund, um, mm-hmm. what's it like working with Peter Theo? Any uh, cool stories that have come out of that? Yeah, I mean, working with Peter has been great. I mean, he's just extremely, extremely intelligent and like very sort of good at sort of explaining his reasoning and things like that. Um, I mean, I don't know if you saw his talk at the sort of Miami Bitcoin conference. I, I still have to catch um, up on that that whole Miami. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta watch yeah. that one, but yeah. we actually, you know, got a sneak preview of it basically uh, before it happened uh, when we were talking about crypto at, an, at a founders fund offsite. And he did sort of a similar similar speech with with the the money and all of that, uh, which I thought was really cool. Um, but yeah, no, I mean it, it's 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 just been great. Like he's a great thought thought partner, and yeah, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, and if there's maybe one thing that you've learned from him, what would, what would that be? Yeah, um, I guess just how important macro and timing is with companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's also a thing he really emphasizes in his book. But, you know, you can be building a company that the world needs and that, you know, is has all the like sort of DNA of a generational company. But right. if your timing is off or if your macro is wrong, like it's not going to work. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that I'm always asking myself when I look at like an MLM for company, is it the right time for this time. company right. or is it going to be three years before like there's enough demand, like the funding like environment is right. The macro environment is right. Um, so yeah, you can't just evaluate stuff based on tech. You have to take everything else to, into account as well. Yeah. Timing's huge. And that's going to kind of get play into that kind of market growth um, right. scale and stuff like that. Um, and so let's kind of walk into maybe your experience as an investor and let's go more philosophical for a second here. Um, and so one of the things I'd love to understand is maybe the initial approach or the initial conversation that you have with founders to, uh, you know, uh, evaluate investor readiness. Like what's that vibe check that you kind of do to get a feel of whether or not they might fit into our investment thesis or kind of the kind of crux of what we do. Yeah. So basically when I, when you first meet, when I first meet, what sorts of things do do I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I always love to hear, the origin story of a company. I think you can get a lot of like why a founder is doing some, what they're doing from, from the origin story. Um, you know, like is this person mostly driven by mission or money or, you know, love of the game, whatever that is. Uh, and I mean, there can be successful founders that are kind of driven by any of those areas, but right. I think being sort of self-aware and then also the type of company, um, I think requires different types of founders. Um, and then as for kind of like other things that I would ask in, in a pitch meeting, I mean, love to hear about sort of the strategy of the company. Uh, I think depending on the type of company, like if you're in a very competitive SaaS category, for instance, mm-hmm. like I think spending a lot of time on competitors and differentiation and, you know, how you plan to like grow market share um, are very important. I think if it's something that's more like greenfield, I think talking through the product and talking through like what success looks like and stuff like that is very important. Um, but yeah, just kind of, I think in general, you know, pitches with, with founders fund tend to be a lot more conversational because it Got is it. more about just, yeah, yeah, understanding how you think and like how you're planning like to grow your company. And um, I think everybody also, it's been great, like taking pitches with everybody on the team because everybody asks very different questions too. Um, right. 
And some people, it's like all about game theory. Some people, it's a bit more about the tech. Um, and so it's a good sort of combination of perspectives to lean on. Right. And quick little side note here. Um, for founders that might feel like uh, they feel intimidation talking to a VC from a well-known fund, what would you tell them? Yeah. Well, I, I can first say that I also sometimes feel intimidation okay. <laughs> through my yeah. interviews. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it can be very intimidating. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think, you know, one thing I'll, I'll say, even if even if VCs sometimes don't show it, um, but ultimately, like, being a founder is, like, I have so much respect for anybody who decides to start a company because I think being a founder is one of the hardest jobs mm, in terms sure. of like the personal responsibility that you take on when, when, you know, you're leading a team and you're ultimately where the buck stops. And, um, so any founder that I talk to, um, you know, I just have like so much respect for that person and, and what they're doing. And, um, yeah, I, I just, that maybe remind yourself that, you know, you're you're taking a big risk and we really appreciate that. And I think we're just trying to kind of figure out like whether or not we're a great fit um, for you at, at your particular, right. your time. Because ultimately like, yes, like literally I'll have friends that sometimes are starting a company or whatever. And I'll say, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think Founders Fund is, a is, good is the best fit yeah. right now. I think it's, yeah, I think it'd be better if you worked with somebody that could help you do X, Y, and Z better than we do. Um, so I think it, it is kind of a, depends on, where you're at, what type of help you need. Um, yeah, things like that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's that, again, at the end of the day, it's a person interacting with a person. So yeah. uh, building that trust and obviously being ready for those set of questions that, you know, most people will be asked. I think just go ahead and easy going. It's, they're just trying to know you, get to know you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I've had so many conversations like, I don't know what to say to them. What if they ask me this and that? And just like, they're like so scared. And it's just like, calm down. It's okay. It's yeah. a conversation. I guess, yeah. I guess another, yeah. Another thing I'll definitely say is like, you know, be honest and, and be your, yourself. yourself. Um, you know, I think one of the things that maybe founders don't realize is kind of a yellow or red flag for some VCs is like when founders are clearly like hiding something or trying right. to make something sound better mm-hmm. than it is. Um, because like, I mean, intellectual honesty, I think is something that's high on people's scorecards. Um, And so like, of course, like being, you know, optimistic and like, you know, long-term oriented, but then at the same time being very realistic about like where things are now, what the risks are, like how you're going to get around those risks. What's the plan B, C, D, E. Um, I think that that's like something Mm -hmm. that VCs love to love to see Um, versus like somebody that's like, you know, Oh, we're totally fine and there's no risk and there's no competition. Yeah. Let's yeah. not repeat there. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah. so that's one thing. Um, so we alluded to this earlier, VC is a power law game. And mm-hmm. so knowing this, how do you maybe personally evaluate a failed investment within a fund? Maybe, I mean, perhaps you haven't experienced one yourself, but in general, if you have other friends that have, mm-hmm. um, and what are some maybe, you know, common things that you note within a business that have led to that failure. So that pattern recognition um, and like, like that personal evaluation, like that reflection that you go through and saying, okay, it was a failure, but how do I kind of uh, go about making sure that doesn't happen again? Although the likelihood <laughs> is that, yeah, it's going to happen. For sure. I mean, it, it, it's a power law. And so that definitely means that, that, that some investments, yeah, won't, won't, won't do as well. And that that's a risk that, that we're very comfortable taking. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, so I've only been a venture investor for, for about a year and including my angel in investing, that's two years. So definitely not in the, in the long enough time frame to like yeah. really see this play out. Um, but yeah, I think as a firm, you know, we talk through investments all the time. And one thread that we notice um, with a lot of our less successful investments or investments that we made and it didn't go out like how we expect expected, mm-hmm. basically, Um it almost always comes back to like the founder and like right. questions we had about the founder during the pitch Got process. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's like the times when we feel full conviction in, in the founder, like we, we rarely ever make a misstep, misstep. But um, if there's ever like, oh, we love the area and we love the strategy and we love the tech, but oh, we're a little not so sure about the team. If we ever do an investment like that, you know, that tends to you know, manifest um, in, in unexpected ways. Uh, so that's like one pattern that we've noticed at Founders Fund in particular. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, like, but it's a it's a risk it's a risk that you, that you take being, sure. being an venture investor. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of other factors that might play into it. You know, a large competitor within the space or a large company in the space gets into your vertical and For kind sure. of takes all market share. Um, and I think this is commonplace when people ask. Um, or do some D to C brand say, what about Amazon? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the common question they usually get is like, why can't they copy it or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's interesting to see, like, I think the team is always the most important, I feel, because they have mm-hmm. a downstream effect on everything going within the organization. Yeah. And I think, you know, you guys noticing that, I think it's powerful. But I think uh, a lot of founders who hopefully are listening to this, um, you know, make sure your team's very tight and that you have open communication and you know exactly what you're doing because uh, yep. culture and all those things lead up to a lot of success in the future, hopefully. Um, so that's that's an awesome point there. Um, and then maybe one thing I'd love to understand is um, as an investor, do you ever experience regret for missing out on opportunities uh, that have maybe become big? And so how do you deal with that personally? Maybe like that mental side of things as well. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, yeah, I do think yeah, definitely asked me this question again in like two or three years. Right. Um, <laughs> I think things become a little bit more clear. Yeah. Um, but it's it's interesting because it's like, you know, as an investor, you might look at a company and like pass, and then like they go they go on and you know like they raise multiple rounds of funding. But like even then, you know. There's there's something in your mind that's like, well, I could still not be wrong necessarily. Right. Like, companies can raise lots of money and like seem to have lots of progress. Um, but if there's like something just like, you know, challenging about the business or whatever, like until that company goes public or, you know, like makes some other sort of like big liquidity event or ROI, you know, that becomes locked in. Um, I mean, you just don't know. Um, and I mean, I think with with our strategy in particular, it's not about finding all of the winners, like we don't make that many investments at all compared right. to other venture firms. It's about being quite sure that the people that we invest in, like the majority of them will be winners. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a little bit of a different approach. Like we know we're missing stuff. There's only 12 investors on the team. Right. Um, but, you know, we want to find great founders and invest in them and continue to double, triple down on our investment. So that's, you know, kind of, the approach. And of course you feel lots of sort of FOMO and all that. Right. Like things, things go on, but you, but you just have to stay very focused. Got it. And then maybe an extension of that is, 
Um, have you ever experienced imposter syndrome uh, while working in VC? And uh, maybe because again, tech is a as rampant, I guess, within that kind of scope of things. And so, um, how have you dealt with that personally? Yeah, I think you know I felt imposter syndrome. Yeah, throughout throughout my career. Um, I think if you don't feel at least a little uncomfortable, you're probably not pushing yourself as much right. as you could. And so I like to remind myself whenever I feel really uncomfortable or really scared, it's like probably like probably I'm growing and I'm probably I'm like becoming a better investor or becoming a better um operator or whatever the case may be. Um and yeah, I mean, I think also it helps just developing good like personal relationships with people in your field. Right. So there's a few, you know, investors that I, I would count, you know, among my friends. Right. Um, and just being transparent, like, you know, with how you're feeling and, you know, especially if they're a little bit further in their career than you and like hearing how they sort of dealt with similar feelings or similar challenges is really helpful. And Got you know, it. I have to remind myself that sometimes being a little bit more vulnerable and honest and open is ultimately a good thing because you do get that support versus like pretending like everything's perfect all the time. Yeah. And I think founders allude to that all the time. They're like, we're pretty solo in terms of our lifestyles. Mm -hmm. But you know, I have to maybe meet another founder friend to kind mm -hmm. of live that same lifestyle and understand like they understand my problems as a person. Right. And so you know, I guess in a similar instance, another VC friend kind of understands exactly what you're going through and they can talk to you about your day and stuff like that. So it's important to have those relationships. Um, right. And so one thing I want to get into now is we can't talk about tech without talking about Elon. And so um, there's a uh, hot take that he had recently. I don't know if it was recently or maybe a couple months back um, where he said AI will eventually take over, have huge impacts on labor markets, specifically those who are not able to gain specialized skills in evolved labor markets will permanently be left without a job, leading to this idea of universal basic income. Mm -hmm. So, you know, given your expertise within the field, what are your thoughts on this hot take? Yeah, I mean, I think directionally, um, you know, eventually in the future, something like this will will play out. I, you know, I think the timing is, is everything, and I do think it'll be much further from now when it really becomes uh, sort of a challenge. Um, definitely don't claim to be an expert here. I do think in general, we as a society need to realize this is going to happen at some point mm -hmm. and need to educate in a different way. Um, like, you know, like I think there needs to be a lot more programmers and a lot more people that could, could figure out ways to to sort of adapt to the, the changing environment. Um, and so that kind of starts with school and with education. Um, but yeah, probably down the road, some sort of policy like that is going to need to be figured out. And hopefully people that are going to be elected to the government will be able to see ahead of time that this needs to happen and be able to like figure out the exact way to roll it out. Um, but yeah, it's something that, you know, I think in the next few decades, um, we need to all start paying attention to and figuring out the exact strategy. Right. And hopefully uh, our elected officials are of, you know, the more expertise variety rather than the general individuals that we see now. Uh, but that's another rabbit hole we can kind of get into later on. Um, or just like people that you yeah. know, realize that they don't know everything and yeah. you know, want to appreciate any nuance. Politics is an <laughs> interesting, <laughs> interesting space. Um, yeah. And if I were a professional uh, understanding this reality that might come about, Mm -hmm. um, how would I want to retrain myself and maybe pick up on some hard skills um, and 
say in the context of the next five years in the future? Right. I mean, I think some good advice just in general is, is learning more and more technical skills or about technical fields, um, whether that's ML or whether that's crypto or whether that's space or whether that's whatever, you know, I think just becoming like starting to develop expertise in an area that will emerge like and become more and become more and more popular over the next few years is in general very useful. So, I mean, if that's if you're in, you know, school, like taking classes that are that are more technical and right. that can help you develop a sort of differentiated <clears throat> expertise. If you're not in school doing things online or, you know, finding different parts of your job that have you develop that sort of expertise. Um, you just kind of want to, yeah, have a differentiated skill set and a skill set that is kind of a bet on where you think things will go. Right. And I and I feel like coding is kind of the future and programming is the future. So mm-hmm. one of the things I've pushed, my brother's a lot younger than me. He's eight years younger than me. I've always pushed him like, please do some programming because I've seen it uh, in terms of my like overtime in terms of how mm-hmm. I've grown. And I've wished I took some coding courses back in university or maybe in high school, but mm-hmm. it wasn't really even promoted. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's like there's one or two courses in high school and nobody really cared. Um, but now it's like the thing to do. Um, and so maybe, so that's kind of like the bulk of that podcast. One thing, one thing I'd love to ask is, you know, what you do outside for fun. Let's see, Lee Marie, not the VC, but Lee Marie, the person. Um, so, you know, uh, you, we've noted that you love to play poker, you Mm -hmm. love to scuba dive and also, you know, run. And so Mm -hmm. have any kind of cool experiences come out of while scuba diving specifically? And then a segue to that is, have you ever considered cave diving? Uh, I would love to go cave diving. I think you have to have like a special <laughs> permit to do that or something. Okay. But I, I would love to do it if you don't. Um, I'm like a I'm patty certified, but I'm not like n- the next level. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I'm always down to to try something. You know, like more than like an acceptable level. level right. Um, but yeah, no, I love scuba diving, running, skiing, staying active. Um, definitely, I think helps with just general stress. Um, I used to not have a very regimented workout routine right. and that took a toll on my sort of like mental health. And, mm-hmm. you know, now, now I do. And <clears throat> it's, it's nine day. And, and would you say you are, a, you're a shark in poker? And, no, uh, I'm terrible in poker. Okay. And play. <laughs> okay, <that's good. laughs> for high stakes of money. <laughs> right. Got it. Got it. No, that's cool. That's cool. Um, so thanks again, Lee Marie. That, that's kind of the end of the podcast there. One thing we always like to do is a little lightning round. Mm-hmm. Um, just to get to know a li- uh, you a little bit better. So there's four questions. I'll give you like a couple of seconds to answer each one mm-hmm. and uh, feel free to uh, give any response there. So the first question, um, favorite book of all time? Probably 1984. Oh, nice. Okay. That's the first time we've gotten that one. Um, usually it's zero to one. So uh, shout out to people. I didn't want to pick a business book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was the one like, you know, my business Bible. But um, like in terms of book that like really changed the way that I think, um, 1984. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um, a company that you are most excited about right now. I know I there's a lot in I your portfolio. One. I can't pick yeah. just one. Um, yeah. But the, yeah. Most of the recent investments that we announced tactic, which you referred to earlier yeah. and uh, Exafunction is another, uh, an ML and friend investment that we announced. Awesome. Recently. Awesome. And it's funny tactic. Um, I, I had a conversation with a friend yesterday 
Uh, mm-hmm. He's in the Web3 space. He's like, yeah. hey, man, uh, since you're an accountant, do you know anything I can do uh, to help me with this whole crypto stuff? I, I manage it on a spread. I'm like, wait a second here. I know Thank something. Thank you. Thank um, you so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I just, I had to, I forgot the name Literally of the company. So I had to go work. through my tweets and stuff. And I'm like, uh-huh. oh, here it is. So go, go uh, figure that out. Um, so that was an interesting kind of world, a uh, small world kind of uh, moment right there. Um if you were to have dinner with one person, who would that be? Elon, for sure. Nice. Yeah, I get nice. so many questions about Twitter <laughs> and all that. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. What are your thoughts on that Twitter stuff, by the way? I mean, I'm quite excited to see what he's going to do with it. Uh, I keep getting people impersonating me on Twitter, so I hope. Oh he wow! Too. <laughs> okay. Wow. Well, luckily, I I don't have that big of a brand yet where I have that problem. I don't but... know. Like even <laughs> even when I didn't have that many followers. Right, really sophisticated, like yeah, impersonation stuff. Okay, that's I know that's the first time I've heard that. Watch out, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, and the last question, most controversial, we say for last, do you like pineapple on your pizza? I don't have a strong opinion, yeah. Mm. I like you know, I I wouldn't prefer it, but if that was the only thing there was to eat, I would eat it, yeah. So, me me and my co host go butt heads over this, like, I'm 100% anti like pineapple, fruits don't belong on pizza. Let's mm. not get into a debate that tomato is also a fruit, but you know, yeah. you know, just, it's just not not something that belongs there. I'd be happy if I never saw it on pizza again, but yeah, yeah not yeah. gonna take away people's joy. Yeah, awesome, awesome. So, um, yeah, that kind of ends the podcast. There, thank you so much for all this valuable input today. Um, I think you know a lot of the founders that listen to our podcast and also the VCs will you know, be gladly to hear your input on uh, thoughts around VC and what's going on. So thanks so much for the opportunity. And this was really rewarding in terms of me learning as well. Yeah, well, great questions. Really do appreciate you having me on the podcast. And yeah, I hope to talk to you again soon.